Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening. The legend of the vampire goes back to time immemorial. From the dawn of man were legends of evil creatures, of evil demons. In almost every religion, there are reports and accounts of these evil beings who would suck the life out of humans. There has not been a time in history when there were not vampire legends. And they remain with us to this day. We have legends that have become larger than life. Stories of people like Countess Elizabeth Bathory, who lived from 1560 to 1640 in Hungary, and was accused of vampiric behavior, biting the flesh of victims and bathing in their blood as a beauty treatment and she chose young virgins to drain them of their blood to keep her beautiful. We have the stories of Vlad Dracula, Vlad Sepish, who we all know as Dracula from the book written by Bram Stoker based on this man's life but not historically accurate. Vlad of Wallachia, better known as Vlad the Impaler, is most likely the root of several vampire legends, including Dracula, as I've said. In addition to impaling his enemies on stakes, Vlad would eat bread that had been dipped in their blood. 
The Egyptians also had their share of vampire lore and bloodsuckers. The Egyptian goddess Sekhmet was known for her taste for blood. And according to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, if a certain part of the soul called the Ka, K-A, the Ka, didn't receive adequate offerings, it left the tomb to drink blood. In China, vampires had long hooked claws and red eyes. They were known as Qiangxi, which translates to corpse hopper. The legend of the Ikimu, a Sumerian and Babylonian myth dating from around 4000 BC, describes that same spirit, the Ikimu, or Ikimu, a spirit that isn't buried properly that returns to suck life from the living. Throughout Northwest Europe, stones called dolmens were placed over graves to prevent the dead from rising. During the 16th century, it was believed that vampires fed off the bodies of plague victims and that female vampires spread the plague. Those suspected of being vampires were even buried with rocks wedged in their mouths. There were times when grave robbers would open a coffin and a corpse would move or sit up, which is a natural reaction that can be caused by decomposition. This may have led to the legend of vampires sleeping in coffins. Medical ailments can mimic symptoms of vampirism. For example, hematodipsia is a sexual thirst for blood. Hemeralopia is day blindness. Porphyria causes sensitivity to light and teeth that are stained reddish brown. Now, having given you all of that information, I want to tell you a story that comes from the past in England. The time is indefinite as the story was told in the late 1800s, but may have gone back to the late 1600s, early 1700s in actuality, and the writer just changed some of the details so he wouldn't get in trouble for telling this story. It involves a place in England called Croglin Grange. And we are going to talk about the vampire of Croglin Grange. A story that's been around for quite a while. The story of the Croglin Grange vampire became famous when it first appeared in the Augustus Hare book, In My Solitary Life. According to Hare's account, the legend took place in England's Cumberland, somewhere between 1875 and 1876, and the exact location was Croglin Grange, which was a single-story stone building and family estate that for centuries was owned by a Fisher family. Uh, The Fisher family decided to move into a larger property and rented out Croglin Grange. For the entire winter, the property was empty, and it was only during the spring that the Cranswell family moved in. Now, the Cranswells were two brothers and a sister. They enjoyed the place. They loved the building. They loved the village. They became very popular in the, in the uh, area. So it was only a matter of time, of course, that spring moves into summer, and summer can be dreadfully hot no matter where you are. 
One particularly hot night, after eating an early dinner and enjoying some fresh air out on the veranda, the three siblings went to their bedrooms. The sister, whose name was Amelia, went into her room, fastened the window, but decided to leave the shutters open. Unable to sleep because of the terrible heat, she started watching outside the window. She enjoyed the mesmerizing view of the silvery moonlight bathing the lawn. Beyond the lawn was a line of trees that separated the churchyard from the property. Gazing out the window, Amelia's eyes suddenly caught glimpses of two flickering lights that were moving in and out of the dark shade of the tree belt. Amelia's gaze fixed on the lights as she saw the lights emerging out of the tree line. She saw that they were fixed on a dark object. She kept watching and became horrified to notice that as the lights grew closer, the object got bigger. She was frozen in fear, but somehow she managed to jump out of the bed and run towards the door. She tried to unlock the closed doors, and she heard a scratching sound at the window. She turned around to see a hideous creature with a terribly ugly face and glaring eyes scratching on the window with its bony fingers. Suddenly the scratching sound stopped and a pecking sound replaced it. Amelia knew immediately that the creature was attempting to pick the lead from around the window pane. Within moments, the glass pane of the window fell out and Amelia noticed the hideous hand of the creature coming in and unlocking the window. Again, she was frozen in horror. She wanted to scream, but her voice denied her. All she could see, the creature crawling in, and before she even understood what was happening, the creature was standing next to her and sank its teeth into her neck. It was the agonizing bite of the creature that freed her voice, and she screamed. Her brothers, alerted by her scream, managed to break into her room, but by the time they got in, the creature had escaped. One of Amelia's brothers chased the monster but failed to catch up as it disappeared over the wall and into the churchyard using giant leaps. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Back in the house, Amelia was unconscious and she was bleeding profusely from the neck. But when she came back to her senses, she said that it might have been an escaped lunatic from an asylum. She said this because she was not much of a superstitious girl. There had to be a reasonable explanation for this attack. As she gradually recovered from the wound, the three siblings left for Switzerland. It was Amelia who later wanted to get back to Croglin Grange, and she said to her brothers that lunatics don't really escape from asylums every single day. They returned, and the winter was peaceful. Next year, March, Amelia was in her bed when she heard the same scratching sound. She immediately recognized it, looked at the window, only to notice the same shriveled face as before. <laughs> 
She screamed at the top of her voice, and her brothers came in with loaded pistols. Her screaming had already sent the creature scudding away through the lawn, but one of her brothers aimed at the creature and shot. The shot wounded one of its legs, but it still managed to slip away over the wall and disappear into a vault. The vault belonged to a family that was long erased from remembrance. Amelia's brothers did not take action that night, but on the following day, they went to the vault with other tenants of the estate. They found the vault in disarray, coffins laying around, broken, and contents scattered all over, except for one coffin. This single coffin was intact, but its lid was open and laying loose on it. They removed the lid to find a hideous brown body lying there with a fresh bullet wound in its leg. They burned the body to kill the vampire. Now there's been some question as to whether this was a real story or just something made up from maybe local histories or local fiction. Charles Harper wasn't really convinced by the story of Hare, which was written in 1896. In 1924, Harper challenged the story and visited Cumberland to uncover the truth. He did some research and found that there was no such estate known as Crogland Grange. He did find Crogland Low Hall and Crogland High Hall. He found that none of the buildings were anywhere close to what was described in Hare's book. He did further research and eventually found that it was Crogland Low Hall that Hare referred to, but there was no church which existed nearby for many years. As Harper went on the attack to prove the Crogland Grange story wrong, Harper's findings were challenged later by a man named F. Clive Ross during the 1930s. He too visited Cumberland, interviewed local people, and concluded that Crogland Low Hall was Crogland Grange. Well, that was no different from Harper's findings, but Ross claimed that the chapel did exist and the foundation stones of the church also existed. Most interesting of Ross's findings was a witness named Mrs. Parkin. This lady lived in a town called Ainstable and claimed to know one of the descendants of the Fisher family. The person she knew was born in the 1860s and had heard the vampire story from his grandfather and grandmother. Mrs. Parkin also revealed to Ross that according to the deeds of Crogland Low Hall, till 1720, it was known by the name Crogland Grange. According to Hare's account, the vampire legend took place in Crogland Grange between 1875 and 1876, but Crogland Grange was renamed back in 1720. So, that was a blunder. Again, it could have been his way of telling the story without getting into too much trouble. The legend, if at all true, should have taken place between the late 1600s and the early 1700s, and not after that. From all the evidence gathered, there is absolutely no way anyone can claim this story to be true but the Fisher family did exist, and so did Crogland Grange. Was it just a mistake made by Augustus Hare, or was the story nothing but pure hoax? You have to decide for yourself. Many of you may have heard the story about the Mercy Brown incident, 
where a deceased lady named Mercy Brown may have become a vampire. It occurred in Rhode Island in 1892. It's one of the best documented cases of the exhumation of a corpse in order to perform rituals to banish an undead manifestation. The incident was part of the wider New England vampire panic of the time. In the Brown family, fathered by George Brown in Exeter, Rhode Island, several cases of consumption, which we know today as tuberculosis, occurred in the family. Friends and neighbors believed that this was due to the influence of the undead. An attempt was made to fix the problem. As I've said, several members of the Brown family had suffered a sequence of tuberculosis infections in the final two decades of the 1800s. Tuberculosis was called consumption and was a devastating and much feared disease, as it still remains. The mother, Mary, was the first to die of the disease, followed in 1883 by their eldest daughter, Mary Olive. In 1891, daughter Mercy and son Edwin also contracted the disease Friends and neighbors of the family believed that one of the dead family members was a vampire, although they didn't use that name, and had caused Edwin's illness. This is in accordance with threads of contemporary folklore relinking multiple deaths in one family to undead activity. I have heard that before, that if a lot of members of a family die, then there's a vampire somewhere in the bloodline, in the family, pardon the bloodline, in the family line, who has come back to claim the victims. Consumption was called that because exactly that's what it did. It consumed someone's body. It just, it basically ate them from the inside out. George Brown was persuaded to give permission to exhume several bodies of his family members. Villagers, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter exhumed the bodies on March 17th of 1892. The bodies of both Mary and Mary Olive exhibited the expected level of decomposition, so they were thought not to be the cause. However, the corpse of a daughter, Mercy, which had been in a freezer-like above-ground vault, exhibited almost no decomposition. She still had blood in the heart and liver. This was taken as a sign that the young woman was undead and the agent of young Edwin's condition. Of course, her lack of decomposition was more likely due to her body being stored in near-freezer-like conditions in an above-ground crypt during the two months following her death. As superstition dictated, Mercy's heart was burned, the ashes were mixed with water and given to the sick Edwin to drink as an effort to resolve his illness and stop the influence of the undead. He died two months later. What remained of Mercy's body was buried in the cemetery of the Baptist Church in Exeter after being desecrated. In popular culture, the Mercy Brown incident was the inspiration for Caitlin R. Kiernan's short story, So Runs the World Away, which makes explicit reference to the affair. It's also a theory that Bram Stoker knew about the Mercy case through newspaper articles and based the character 
the novel's character, Lucy Westenra, upon her, upon Mercy. It's also referred to in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House. Mercy Brown's story was the inspiration for the young adult novel Mercy, The Last New England Vampire by Sarah L. Thompson. An account of the events as told by the remaining descendants of Mercy is available in Michael Bell's Food for the Dead on the Trail of New England's Vampires. Like I said, vampire stories come from all over. They, they exist all over. And there's not really a time frame for them. Vampire stories in France stretch back to the illustrious 1700s when there was a man there who was a mystery to everyone, but he charmed the courts of Europe. His name was the Comte Saint-Germain. He said he was a strange, extraordinary character. He was a master of the piano and the violin, could converse in six different languages, and his skills as a conversationalist were unrivaled. And as we know, that conversation is a skill that is dead now in today's culture. But nobody knew the extent of his wealth. Uh, he carried gems around in his clothing, and no one knew how he came to such wealth. No one knew anything about his family, where he came from, or who he was. One of his greatest passions was alchemy, and he was believed to have an extraordinary talent for not aging. Perhaps it was his vast knowledge of cosmetics and herbs that kept him young. Sounds like maybe he was the basis of the character of Dorian Gray. The philosopher Voltaire called the Comte Saint-Germain the man who knows everything and who never dies. No one really knew his true age. He looked about 40 in all of his portraits and continued to appear so for over half a century. Although he was charming and engaging and graced the dinner tables of many dukes and kings, no one had ever saw him eat anything. He would only sip his wine exquisitely and ramble on about everything from history to chemistry. Let's jump forward to New Orleans, Louisiana, and suddenly there's a man named Jacques Saint-Germain who fits every description of the Comte. Around 40 years of age, with heavy money bags, the most fascinating of dinner guests, and still a complete mystery. He would throw lavish parties and invite the elite. Everyone would sit enraptured by the conversation and food, but curiously enough, this Jacques never would eat a morsel only sip his wine. But one night, he had a lady stay a bit late. Out on his balcony at the corner of Ursuline and Royal Streets, this Saint Germain grabbed her and tried to bite her neck. She escaped by falling from the balcony and then reported the incident to the police. When the police came to investigate, Jacques Saint Germain had vanished. They searched his apartment and found tablecloths with large splotches of blood on him. They searched the kitchen where they found no sign of food or evidence that food had ever been there. All they found were bottles of wine and after pouring themselves a glass and drinking it and spitting it out, they discovered it was not wine in those bottles but wine mixed with human blood. To this day, the mysterious figure has its own occult following, from theosophists 
to complete Way Out There Mystics. The Count was purported to die in the year 1784, although no one saw his death, and some claim to have seen him many years after this date. Nevertheless, he disappeared from court life. I would, too, if I knew the French Revolution was coming, and some say that he foresaw that. In the history of New Orleans, murder has always been high there. The, the rate of murders. It's also been a notorious place for missing persons. It's a place where people just disappear and no one knows what happened to them. The blood of the French, Spanish, Indian, African, Creole, and English all mixed together there. And the mosquito's not so picky. He'll drink it all. Apparently, neither are other creatures in the New Orleans area. John and Wayne Carter were brothers. Normal in every respect, had normal labor jobs down by the river and lived on the street in the French Quarter. It was during the 30s, during the Depression, and times were hard, so a man worked all he could. One day, a girl was reported to have escaped from the Carter brothers' apartment and run to the authorities. Her wrists were cut, not so much to cause death, but enough to make her bleed slowly. The policeman went to the Carter's third-story apartment and found four other people tied to chairs with their wrists sliced in the same fashion. Some had been there for days. It was the story that the brothers abducted these people in order to drink their blood at the end of every day when they came home from work. Police also found about 14 dead bodies. The cops waited for the brothers to return, and when they did, it took seven or eight of them to hold down the two normal-sized men. A few years later, when the Carters were finally executed, their bodies were placed in their New Orleans vault. New Orleans being such a place where underground burial is not acceptable because of the water table, apparently, they have to have the graves above ground in vaults. It makes for a very pretty cemetery, but kind of eerie also. What they do is, when a person dies, they put them in the vault. And as the body and the coffin decompose and fall apart, it makes room for the next body. And it's just like reloading the vault whenever a family member dies. Anyway, many years after... The Carter brothers' death, when they were placing some other Carter members in the family vault, they discovered the vault was completely empty. No John or Wayne. They were gone. There are many sightings of the brothers in the French Quarter that match the descriptions of these two brothers. And years later, an owner of their apartment saw two figures that matched their descriptions outside on the balcony one night, whispering to each other. Both figures jumped off the top of the third floor balcony and took off running. The rumor is that if a vampire drinks your blood seven nights in a row, then you become a vampire. One, some of those found in the Carter brothers' apartment had been there for over seven days. One warped fellow named Felipe went on to become a notorious serial killer. And, of course, he would do more than just kill his victims. It was believed 
that he drank his victim's blood, all 32 of them. There's a story that back in the colonization of New Orleans, the French were trying to get women interested to go to New Orleans so men could marry them and start a French colony. That, not too out of the way, too odd. But the women found out that most of the people over there were thieves or, or thugs or pirates or just not good people. We're not talking classy people here. And they decided not to go. Well, they finally talked a bunch of women into going. And the rumor was that some of them were nuns. And another rumor was that they were all prostitutes. So, it, you know, it's a flip of the coin as to what you believe about that. But a bunch of them didn't make it all the way to New Orleans because they got off the ship in Mobile, Alabama when they heard who they were going to marry. But the girls that were traveling there had very interesting luggage. It, uh, it all looked like coffins. Here are these New Orleans men waiting on this shipload of women, and here come these 300 coffin-like suitcases. No women, just the suitcases. There were stories that they were empty. Some say they contained the undead. These suitcases were reportedly stored in the attic of a convent in the French Quarter, where they still sit behind windows that are nailed shut because they have a strange habit of opening by themselves. Years later, it said that 1978, two amateur reporters demanded that the convent's priest let them in to see these coffins. The priest, of course, denied their entrance. So one night, these two men climbed over a wall with their recording equipment and set up their workstation. The next morning, the reporter's equipment was found strewn about on the street outside. And there on the convent's front steps were found the almost decapitated bodies of these two men. Eighty percent of their blood was gone. To this day, this unsolved crime baffles investigators. Well, that's what I have for this week. Stories that suck. Ha! <laughs> I'm sorry. Couldn't resist it. You can contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook or at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Remember to listen on Mondays for Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast with Aaron Hunter. On Tuesdays, remember to listen to Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. And on Wednesdays, listen to me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with your host, Terry, from Texas. And occasionally, you'll get the Sandman Lullaby. That'll be announced when it's going to come on. Thank you for listening. You folks have a great week.